and welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Lauren Evans. And I'm Virginia Allen. Okay, so Lauren, you've been back in D.C. for over a week now. You spent the long weekend in D.C. You were in Florida with your family for a while. But how has it been adjusting back to going from a pretty open state in Florida where you could kind of just be living life normally to now trying to still have fun and get out and do things in a city that's really still under lockdown. I feel like it's mainly the attitudes of the people, which have been a lot different. In Florida, people were still wearing masks to the same extent, um, but I think they were hopeful and they just wanted to protect others and, and protect the elderly and the, um, the immunocompromised. But they they wanted to live their lives and um you know being in florida it's so important to be out in the sun i think in dc it's just a different mindset um i actually went to a restaurant here in dc on 14th street and they sold margaritas in little um like the chinese soup to go containers um so we got one of those and we went to my friend's backyard and we social distance I would say people are more fearful here. I think both sides do have some pro and cons. It is something that we need to be taking seriously. But I think I like in Florida that people just want to live their lives and and, and kind of, I think they're, they're more optimistic about things down there. And I, I think a lot of that has to do with the sunshine and the heat because when things are so beautiful, you have to get out of your house. But Virginia, you went down to Georgia and, and that state's even more open than Florida. What's been your experience? Yeah, no, I sort of did the opposite thing. I went from Northern Virginia, which is still very much like D.C., closed down and people are being super, super cautious. And you're kind of sensing that fear element to Georgia where it is pretty much wide open. Um, and I actually uh, wrote a story this week that should be coming out soon for the Daily Signal just about the opinions of small business owners. And I actually went and talked to a lot of small business owners in Georgia about, you know, do you think your state open? too soon and you feel comfortable. And I was really fascinated by just the mixed responses I got. You know, some people really feel like, yeah, it's good. We should be open. And, you know, people should be able to kind of use their own judgment on whether to stay home or go out, while others really are still very fearful and really think that uh, we should still be social distancing, even though it is, uh, you know, a, a warmer climate and maybe a little bit more of a um, spread out area. But, it's it is wild to go from somewhere that's so closed down to so open, and it's like oh, I like I actually can walk into restaurants, and uh, yeah, people are you know going shopping and just kind of doing those things and living life. Uh, but I agree, Lauren. I think I feel like the warmer weather plays a huge factor in people just feeling like okay, it's actually all right to be out and about and living life. So anyway, but. What what did you do over your long weekend? I heard something about a bike ride. Yeah, so like I mentioned on Saturday, we uh, we got margaritas and we sat in my friend's backyard. So that was kind of fun to do back to normal. And then on Monday, me and my roommate rented uh, the Capital Bike Share bikes. You can rent them by like a half an hour, and we brought Lysol wipes and we wiped them down. But uh, we went on the Metropolitan Branch Trail, which kind of runs through DC. It's a really kind of like urban but kind of remote trail I, I don't know how to explain it um and then we rode over to catholic and we sat in the lawn there and looked at the national basilica uh, and it was just really pretty and it was really nice to be outside 
Um, I think every day this weekend in DC, it was like, we'd wake up and it'd be cloudy and we'd be like, no, we're going to be stuck inside. <laughs> and then out of nowhere, it got sunny. Um, That's so nice. we're really able, yeah, to, to get outside. It's so weird, you know, that that was like a, a, a big thing. We went on a four mile bike ride. Exactly. No, it's like, it's the little things now that are huge. I went on a hike on Memorial Day and it was so nice to just for a second, like get into nature and forget that the world is really crazy right now. So it's important to do those things, get out, get fresh air. It's a huge blessing. Uh, But Lauren, before we get too far into today's show, I just want to say that I am completely obsessed with the documentary (laughs) you and Kelsey Buller produced on the life of Sue Ellen Browder. It is absolutely incredible. Well, I'm so glad, Virginia. So much work went into that. We flew to Wyoming. Kelsey must have been six or seven months pregnant. It wasn't too long before she actually had Scarlett. We drove three hours literally through nothing, and it was beautiful. It was through the Grand Tetons. You know, it's just one of those experiences that you'll remember for the rest of your life is just the mountains and the the vast expanse. And um, we got to spend uh, three days with Sue and it was just really amazing. This woman that we've, we've seen speak and we've read her book um, to really get to meet her and get to know her uh, was really fun. And then we just, her story was so robust and there's so much. And I really encourage you guys. We'll, we'll, talk later in the interview about reading her book, Subverted, but I really just want to hit that home again, that there's so much more that we couldn't include in this video. Um, So it was a really a struggle to condense that information in. And then to edit at home, uh, I'm sure everyone listening knows projects that just take so much of your creative juice, you know, and it's something that you can't just like do 15 minutes at a time. You really have to like spend hours of of just immersing yourself. And I was, it was really a struggle to find the hours while I was home, either with my roommate or my parents or my sister, you know, just being there and I want to spend time with them, but I, I really needed to kind of get deep into this. So I would say the majority of work that I did editing this documentary, I probably did between like 11 and 3 a.m. Um, <laughs> because that was the time that I could really just like pour myself into this. And it was just me and, and the video. And I, I'm just, I'm so proud of the way that it turned out. I love working with everyone at the Daily Signal, but I think especially Kelsey and I have such a um, special bond as colleagues and uh, as co-producers. And mm-hmm. I think that really comes out that, you know, just it, it Everything that the show is about, about how women are independent and, and that they're they're special and, and our femininity is something that, that is sacred and we need to be proud of, um, but also showing that, you know, women didn't always have it easy. Uh, I, I think about it all the time that my great-grandmother, who I was very close with, she was born without the right to vote. You know, women who were working, you know, my, my grandmother's age, who were working could have been fired for being pregnant. And and it's something that we really need to kind of understand both sides of it. And I think the feminism debate in this country, it gets so polarized so quickly. And and I think Sue's story just really brings it together in a way that, that's, that you can really feel it and see it and know why it's so important to be pro-life. And it's so important to be pro-woman and pro-family and just really encourage one another as women to, to, to reach our full potential. I think that was my greatest takeaway from the documentary was that 
Sue Ellen Browder just shoots straight to the heart of the issue. And it's sort of like, okay, let's remove all of the kind of the fluff around the debate and the, um, you know, this feels right or wrong. or And she just kind of went right for, no, like, this is what happened. This is the truth. Uh, it's really, really incredible just to watch her tell her her story. And I think that's what really makes it is it's not just, well, you know, this is what happened, but this is what happened to me. This is what I live. This is what I saw firsthand. Um, so absolutely incredible. And I am so excited that we actually have Sue Ellen Browder on the show with us today. Yeah, let's get through the intros really quick so everybody can get to the interview. <laughs> All right. Like Virginia and I just talked about in detail, Sue Ellen Browder is going to be on the show in just a few minutes. And we couldn't bring Sue on the show without bringing co-founder, co-host, and dear friend of ours, Kelsey Bowler, back to do the interview about her work writing fake news for Cosmopolitan Magazine during the sexual revolution. Plus, we talk with interior designer Robin Strobel about occupational licensing reform in her profession and many others. And as always, we'll be crowning our Problematic Woman of the Week. Each week on Problematic Woman, we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and encourage others to subscribe. It really does make a difference. All right, let's get to it. Welcome back to the show. Before we start our next segment, I have a surprise for everyone. Hold on. Hello. Welcome back. Former Problematic Women co-host and current senior policy analyst at IWF, the one, the only, Kelsey Bowler. Kelsey, I have to say, even though we aren't physically together, it is so fun to have you back on the show. It is so great to be here. It's it's weird because, in a way, I feel like I never left. Uh, part of the reason I didn't want a big goodbye episode uh, a couple months ago when I left my full-time role with Daily Signals because I was very hopeful that a part-time contributorship was going to come through because I could not leave you all. I love our team at the Daily Signal, and I am honored and excited to share that I will continue to contribute and hopefully appear as a contributor on Problematic Women as well. So you guys are not done with me yet. I love it. I'm, I'm just so excited you're back. So, Kelsey, we're bringing you back on the show this week because we just released a documentary on one of our personal heroes, Sue Ellen Browder. To talk more about the documentary, we also have Sue herself. Welcome, Sue. Well, it's good to be here. Thank you. Sue Ellen Browder is an award-winning journalist who has appeared on Oprah, The Today Show, and hundreds of other radio talk shows. Her work for 20 years as a writer for Cosmopolitan and other magazines has given her a lifetime of experience with the women's movement as it unfolded in the media, both on the public stage and behind the scenes. Sue speaks regularly to women's groups around the country and was recently invited to participate in a panel on the status of women at the United Nations. Today, she lives a very different life than she did during her former cosmopolitan days. 
She lives out in Wyoming in a town that is so quiet and small that the COVID pandemic has hardly even touched them. Sue, I'm so excited that you're here. The first question is an easy one. How are you doing? I'm doing absolutely fantastic. We're in Wyoming. They've opened up the state quite a bit. We're we're still having some social distancing, but we've had a full um, schedule of services all through all of this. Well, let's talk about the documentary. It was inspired by your memoir, Subverted, How I Helped the Sexual Revolution Hijack the Women's Movement. The book has five stars on Amazon, in case anyone was wondering. Uh, And we kind of want to start from the beginning here. You're from a small town in Iowa. You went to one of the most prestigious journalism schools. Uh, You wanted to be a writer. You landed at Cosmo, and what happened? Well, I wanted to be a magazine writer. I actually majored in magazine writing. And then I went to uh, Los Angeles for a year. Then we went to New York City, and I got a job at Cosmopolitan Magazine. Now, when I was at that at the uh, University of Missouri School of Journalism, I had chosen Cosmo as my magazine to investigate for one of our classes. We were supposed to look at it, a magazine and see what would you have to do to um, sell articles to this magazine. And when I looked at it, even when I was out in Missouri, I said, these stories look like they're made up. They don't. They didn't feel real. They were too pat. And when I got on Cosmo, when I got on staff at Cosmo, I found out that that was accurate. These stories were made up. Helen Gurley Brown, who was the editor of Cosmo in those days, even had a list of rules on how to make up stories to sell the sexual revolution to young women. So that brings me into my next question. I wanted to ask about Helly Gurley Brown. You talk about her a lot in the book and, and what she taught you, and, and not in a good way, um, to write fake news, but you prefer a different term. Can you tell our listeners what that term is and how that has really affected society today? Well, I said that we were writing propaganda because propaganda, the definition of propaganda is half-truth, limited truth, and truth out of context. So so this is what we were, were promoting to young women. There were lots of things that were, were not allowed to say in the magazine, and then we made up a lot of stories about people. So this was, this was propaganda, but, but you see, what people are calling fake news today is a lot of it is really the result of, of half-truth, selected truth, and truth out of context. So what the, the, that's the classic definition of propaganda. How is this propaganda used to hijack the women's movement? Can you give us an idea also of the time period we're talking about? We're talking about the early 1970s and the late 1960s. Um, Propaganda was used to hijack the women's movement in that the women's movement and the sexual revolution in those days were two radically separate movements. Helen Gurley Brown would have loved for Cosmo to be part of the women's movement, part of the feminist movement, but Betty Friedan, who had launched the women's movement with her 1963 book, The Feminine Mystique, called Cosmo quite obscene and quite horrible. She was very much against the sexual revolution, and the women's movement was all about empowerment of women in the workforce and in academia. So how did those two get joined together? How did this false sexual 
sexual revolution, which was made up entirely of lies in the beginning. These women weren't that there weren't that many women out there hopping into bed with every man they met and all of that stuff. How did those two get joined together? Well, that was after I became a Catholic in uh, 2003. A lot of my friends began to ask me that question, and I didn't know the answer. So that's when I started writing this book, Subverted. I started looking into it. How did they get joined together? And the the short answer is that when Betty Friedan at the in the feminist movement accepted abortion as a necessary right for women, then Helen Gurley Brown at Cosmo said, "Yeah, we're all for that. We're all for that." And the two got joined together in the minds of women and in in the minds of the media, in the minds of the world. What were the consequences of that? Well, the consequences have been, have been uh, terrible for women. Well, the thing that women are protesting today in the Me Too movement is the result of that false joining of the sexual revolution with the feminist movement. Women are now told that, they, if, that if they want to be liberated, they have to be sexually liberated. They have to want sex with any, any man who, who asks, you know. Um, so, so the two join together. A woman who who wants a good job and and a, and a good education shouldn't have to uh, sell her body to get that way, and she shouldn't have to give it away either. So the two got joined together, and this is the very thing that the Me Too movement is protesting, even as they pretend that they're supporting women when they're supporting abortion. The abortion is the kingpin here. Uh, you separate those two out because that that's where you get into women's. Um, uh, sexuality is is with with abortion. You separate those two out, and you've got an authentic feminism. That's why I say that the pro-life movement is the authentic women's movement of the 21st century. So many young women who are pro-life have a hard time identifying as a feminist because they are worried about what that word has come to mean. What you're really arguing is that there's been a big revisionist history regarding the actual history of the women's movement, which was the feminist movement even before abortion was ever a part of it. How did this happen? How did so many women and men, for that matter, come to buy into this fake history and what can and should we do about it? Well, there's a chapter in my book on the, what happened in the Chinese room of the Mayflower Hotel on November 18, 1967, in Washington, D.C. And what happened that night, where there were only about 100 people in the room that night, it was the National Organization for Women's Second Annual Conference. And there was a vote, there were votes taken that night, that day and night, on what women's rights amounted to. There were only eight rights voted on that day and that night. And most of them are things we can all agree with. A woman should have equal pay for equal work. A woman should have be able to, to go to law school and medical school. Uh, families should be able to deduct child care expenses from their income taxes. There were only two rights that stirred up any controversy that in that meeting. One was the Equal Rights Amendment. That's, that's now history, I hope. Uh, some people are trying to bring it back. The other, though, was the abortion right. And they fought over that until almost midnight that night 
one-third of those women later walked out and resigned from now over the abortion vote. When it was settled, there were only 57 people in that room that voted to insert abortion into the Feminist Bill of Rights, into the National Organization's Bill of Rights. When once... That happened. Betty Friedan, who was president at the time, came out and said she was speaking for all women everywhere, all women across America who wanted to go back to get to go back to um, to uh, college, who wanted to do, get into the workforce. All of these women. She was talking for millions of women. She was only talking about fifty-seven uh, people in the Chinese room that night. And one third of those women, as I say, walked out of now and later resigned from the organization over the abortion vote. And where did they go? These were pro-life feminists. Now, these, these are fervent feminists. These are the founders of the feminist movement in the 1960s. So these were fervent feminists. They walked out and resigned over the abortion vote, and they went on to fight for lots of freedoms that now women have. They, they uh, um, fought in the courts, to, these pro-life feminists, fought in the courts to get help-wanted male and help-wanted female ads out of newspapers. They fought to allow married women to, ha- to uh, get credit in her own name. They fought for, in some states for women to be able to serve on a jury. They fought so that women would not be fired for being pregnant. People forget that in those days, women were fired for being pregnant. I was fired for being pregnant. So you see, in some ways, my generation might have bought into that, well, we need abortion to empower ourselves because otherwise we're going to be fired for being pregnant. But it was a false empowerment, and the pro-life women's movement knew that, and they still know that today. It's crazy for me and and for Kelsey and and women in our generation to think that, you know, it was even possible in in this country to be fired for being pregnant. Uh, When we were doing research and trying to find footage, you can't even find images of women pregnant back in the 50s and 60s because it was so taboo. So, you know, why is it important for women uh, who are pro-life, who, you know, don't fit in this traditional feminist box to identify with the feminist movement? I think it's important because I say we need to take back the F word, feminism, (laughs) (laughs) because it's being used against us, if you will. People, women are standing up who are pro-abortion, who are standing up against, still to this day, pretending that they are speaking for all liberated women, when in fact, the most liberated women are the pro-life women who are also uh, including motherhood in their ambitions, if, they, if you will. They want to be both mothers and have careers. There's no reason why they shouldn't. And if we don't speak up and say we are the authentic feminists of the of the 21st century, they, these other women, the propagandists, if you will, will continue to uh, run the show, will continue to be sp- pretend to young women, deceiving young women, that they are speaking for all women in America, and they are not. So, so we just saw you last year, but so much has happened since we filmed. I've already joked, but Kelsey had a baby. There's been a global pandemic And you also wrote a book, Sex and the Catholic Feminist, New Choices for a New Generation. And I love this. Literally, the first sentence of the description says, it challenges the notion that you can't be a feminist and believe in God. So this is so interesting, and it's something that I wrestle with myself 
personally, and, and I think we've, t- we've touched on a little bit, that society wants to put feminists and Christians into separate boxes. So can you tell us a little bit about this new book and your inspiration for writing it? Well, that this book carries the subverted a little bit farther. It's a small book. It's only about 100 pages. I wanted something that women could read very quickly and absorb the history of the women's movement very quickly. And what it does is it shows that pro-life women, Christians, were the ones that started the feminist movement. Um, Alice Paul and a lot of those women that were with her were Christians that, that gave women the right to vote. So this was the women's movement from the beginning was a Christian movement. It came, it grew out of a, a desire for women's dignity and respect, and and it also. When Betty Friedan came along in the 60s and and started talking about feminism, what did she say feminism was really about? She says the core that feminism is about is a woman's personhood. And she said a woman's personhood should not be limited. She made a mistake when she inserted abortion in the women's movement, and she fought against that mistake for the rest of her life, but she didn't realize what she'd done. She didn't realize that she had joined the sexual revolution with the women's movement. Betty Friedan was not a Christian, and she, and when she, was, she was an agnostic and maybe even an atheist at the time that she wrote the book. So, but but these women that at the, in, that walked out of the National Organization for Women meeting that night and went on to win all these rights were again pro-life Christians. So pro-life Christians have been in this movement all the time, and they are still there marching in the March for Life every year. They are still protesting what happened in that Chinese room that night. And we need to know what happened, and so we can tell it to others, and so we can straighten out the story. The narrative is totally wrong. So that book is called Sex and the Catholic Feminist. I want to know, is it just for Catholics or is it more for any pro-life woman of faith? And I'm curious because I have a lot of pro-life friends who absolutely reject the label feminism, as I mentioned earlier. What would you recommend my generation says to them about why they should reconsider identifying with the F word? Well, I think that the, 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 that was a big question there. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, the, it is, it is a, it's called Sex and the Catholic Feminist because we do, it's written, it's um, published by Ignatius Press, which is a Catholic press. And we do take this completely through, starting with feminism of what it was in the beginning, which was mostly non-Catholics that started. It was, it was a Protestant movement in, in the early 1900s, and, but there were Catholics involved in it. I mean, so it's, it is, this is more of a, um, of a Christian book than, than just, just Catholics, not limited to just Catholics. But I do talk about John Paul II, who said we should create a new feminism. And that's what this book is about. What would that new feminism look like? Well, what it looks like is the pro-life movement of, of right now. This, this is the feminist movement. And when I spoke at the um, March for Life and the Pro-Life Summit in January, these women were on fire. They knew 
that they have the true empowerment of women and and they're ready to speak up. So so in some ways I'm saying that these the uh, pro-life movement already is is taking back the effort. They're already doing it and uh, we're do, we're doing it big time. So Sue, one thing that you wrote about in your book and you spoke about in this documentary is that abortion isn't just something that you talk about, it's something that you've lived through. How has that influenced your career and your life right now? Well, once I, as I say, once I became Catholic, I did have an abortion. I aborted my third child in uh, the 1970s. Once I came into the Catholic Church, um, I didn't actually think the Catholic Church would let me in because I did that, <laughs> but but they did. And uh, once I came into the Catholic Church, the uh, I went to confession, and I I had a wonderful priest. And I got healed from that. And once I got healed from that abortion to the point where I could talk about it, um, I realized I needed there's, – there's a lot of women hurting out there who are still so – hurting so much they can't talk about it. And I realized I, I had reached the point where I could, and it was time I needed to do that. It's this book – both of these books were written as as. Uh, penitence, if you will. Um, I didn't really want to tell my story when I first started, but the ma- the uh, editor wanted uh, that part of the story. And so my priest said, well, if you're going to do it, do it as an ascetic exercise. In other words, don't sit around and, and moan and groan and, 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 and go back too deep and make it, make it as bad, you know, and don't, don't muck around in it forever. But just constantly just do it as an ascetic exercise and a uh, and, and as, as a penance and that's what i did well the way you talked about it in your book you you handled it with such grace and i highly recommend any woman who's struggling with an issue like that read it and, and read your experience of coming out on the other side which is very inspirational to see the way you are healed from it. Um, but, you know, in, in addition to having abortion, you've also had two children, your mother, yourself. Um, I'm a new mom. I have a baby girl who's eight months old. Um, yes, and one of, the things, <laughs> yeah, one of the things you talk about regarding feminism is motherhood and how true feminists shouldn't have to choose between their career and being a mom. Obviously, that is easier said than done. um, But I'm curious what your advice is for young women like me who quite honestly are struggling with balancing careers and our desires for motherhood and also, you know, young women who would be might be listening to this and hope in the next couple years, they might be faced with this beautiful, but at times stressful decision. Well, it's a stressful decision because of that false feminism. We didn't go far enough. I call it, reclaim the F word, go out there and say, I'm a mother and I need my rights in the workplace as well. I don't need to be able to choose. You are already one of the new young feminists. Uh, you will figure it out. You're all very bright. I'm not leading a new feminist movement here. You are. You, and, and that's in, in my books. The last thing I say to you, 
And I'll, I'll read it. This is in Sex and the Catholic Feminist. We're going to go right to the juggler here. In the inspiring words of St. John, John Henry Newman, God has a good for you to accomplish, and he will not cast you aside. What are you going to do? Well, I certainly appreciate <laughs> that <laughs> advice, and I, I think um, you know it's a heavy burden to carry. But I do agree that um, you know many myself and other colleagues are forging a new path for you are you are. Yeah. I mean, look at us right now in a global pandemic. We're all realizing that it is possible to work from home. I have you know, my, my husband holding the baby right next door. Um, but it is nice to figure out these new options that technology makes it easier um, to do. But there's no easy answers. But I agree that it is really up to this generation of young mothers to advocate for themselves and find a way to not compromise their desires for motherhood or their careers. That's right. That's right. And once you, and once you realize you don't have to split the two in two, I mean, I, I did it by working at home. I'm a, I'm a writer, so I worked at home and, my, and raised my children. And my husband was also a writer, so we stayed at home and raised the children together. That worked out very, very well. Um, more people can do that now. You've got homeschooling. Who knows? But you'll, you'll figure it out. You, you're very bright. You're very educated. You're very talented. And you can do this. <laughs> I, I I agree. Kelsey is very bright <laughs> and very talented, and she can do it. Well, Sue, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. I know Kelsey and I were just so excited to have you on the show. I really implore our listeners to go out, buy Subverted, read it once, read it again. The documentary will be in the show notes. It'll also be on the Daily Signals Facebook and YouTube. Uh, and Sue, can you give our listeners information on where they can go ahead and buy Sex and the Catholic Feminist? That one, I think you're best going to catholic.store. The reason why, that's instead of Amazon, because they keep running out of books. Every time we do a a podcast or something, they run out of books. (laughs) So go go to catholic.store, because you can get it cheaper, and you can get several copies and give them out to your friends. If you get a a few of them, it it gets cheaper as you go along. And I think I'm going to get 25. You can get it for 7 bucks. (laughs) So, which is half price. So catholic.store is the best place to go. Awesome. Well, everybody go do that. Thanks again, Sue. It's a pleasure. All right. Confession time. I don't know about you all, but I spend more time than I should on YouTube. So I'm always looking for videos that are actually educational and beneficial for me in some way. And the Daily Signal YouTube channel never disappoints. There is so much binge-worthy content, whether it's policy issues or news explainers or documentaries, like the documentary that Lauren and Kelsey just produced telling the story of Sue Ellen Browder. So if you're not driving, go ahead and pull out your phone and subscribe to the Daily Signal YouTube channel so that you can be in the know on the news and on all of those issues that you care about. All right, now stay tuned for Kelsey and I's conversation with interior designer Robin Strobel. 
Kelsey, Lauren and I just love having you back on the show. You all had such an awesome conversation with Sue Ellen Browder, uh, and I'm very happy that you're staying on for our next conversation. Uh, so Kelsey, you recently wrote a story for the Daily Signal about occupational licensing reform. And this sounds like a really complex topic, but let's just take a second to explain what exactly that is. Uh, nursing is one field that has really strict licensing requirements. If, for example, I work in North Carolina as a nurse and I decide I'm going to move to Texas, usually I would have to get licensed in Texas to be a nurse there. Even though I was already licensed in North Carolina, Texas has different standards for their licensing, so I would now have to fill out paperwork and probably take some tests in order to get licensed in that new state. But during COVID-19, there were exceptions that were made in order to allow nurses in North Carolina to maybe go to Texas or New York City, for example, and practice medicine there because the the demand being so high. And lifting the requirements has really been critical to ensure that areas hit hardest by COVID-19 have been able to receive the medical support that they need. But nursing is not the only field that requires special licensing in order to practice. Kelsey, you have been talking with a number of different people about this kind of occupational licensing reform. And this is a topic that affects not only nurses and doctors, but even financial planners and interior designers. Can you tell us a little bit more uh, about the story you wrote and why occupational licensing can actually get in the way of professionals being able to do their job and even operate their business? Absolutely. So the nurses who you referenced responded to the coronavirus crisis by dropping everything and flying into one of the nation's hotspots. They really are heroes. Uh, many of them had families, young children at home who they left behind and uh, went and got put up in a hotel for uh, many over a month to really serve uh, their fellow Americans in this great time of need. And that couldn't have been done without states relaxing their licensing requirements. And a lot of them now who we interviewed are asking, if their health is good enough during a pandemic, why is it not good enough during normal times? I think that's something to think about. Uh, I want to you know, point out that no one's advocating to get rid of the health and safety standards for nurses or any of these professions. But, you know, if their help is good enough in a state like Oklahoma, why isn't it good enough for New York? That's the question they're now asking. Why not have just one national set of standards that these different nurses and other professions have to reach? Um, but really, the nursing profession is only the tip of the iceberg, as you pointed out. Independent Women's Forum launched an entire campaign called Chasing Work, which highlights all the ways these bureaucratic licensing requirements are stopping people, many of them women, from being able to work. Our next guest, Robin Struble, who's an interior designer, has quite a story. Robin is a registered commercial interior designer who isn't allowed to submit her own designs for permits despite her extensive education and training. Instead, she must have her designs approved by architects who are often her main competition. Robin's joining us today to explain how both designers and clients would benefit from allowing qualified commercial interior designers to work freely without the unnecessary supervision of architects. Robin, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much for having me. 
So first off, can you tell us why you pursued a career in interior design? What education or licensing requirements you had to obtain in order to do that and uh, where this has all left you now? All right. Uh, well, pursuing uh, the major in interior design or the decision to be an interior designer was something that really interested me, but it was very different then than what it is now in that I expected perhaps residential design. Um, but my degree really led me into commercial design because I love programming, which is determining space needs and how a company works and what their business strategy is and how this, the space supports um, what they, uh, how they want to operate in their business. So that is really what, what um, we do. Uh, we, I am a commercial space expert and we do planning and design for any type of commercial space, a public building, retail, uh, multifamily, anything that is uh, really anything other than residential. Awesome. That's so cool. And explain to us a little bit more about the the licensing requirements to do your job, to be a designer uh, on, on that large scale of, you know, office buildings and commercial spaces. And then could you take a minute also to just explain how some of those licensing requirements actually end up restricting the business that you can do? Absolutely. Well, in Wisconsin, Anyone can call themselves an interior designer, an interior decorator, whatever related name they want to call themselves. What we have in Wisconsin is the ability to become a Wisconsin registered interior designer, which sets us apart because that indicates that we are commercial. We have the expertise, the education, and then have taken the national exam and passed it and are qualified to design for the built environment. So that is the designation of the Wisconsin Registered Interior Designer, which is very critical for the health, safety, and welfare of building occupants because it has to do with, of course, all the building codes. It has to do with ADA. It has to do uh, now, of course, even more with COVID-19 and how we respond, how we design to keep people safe, to keep them socially distanced, what types of materials we use. The other ways that affects the safety is through the flammability of materials that are specified, the welfare of people through things like the plumbing fixtures that we specify, how they help reduce water flow, low VOC paints. I mean, it's kind of a, an interesting combination of in the health, safety, and welfare of, of wellness, of safety in materials, of safety in the built environment where everything comes together in the field of interior design. And that is what the expertise of Wisconsin Registered Interior Designer is. So you you have these state requirements. And then within that, though, you often have to have an architecture still approve your designs. Could you explain that a little bit further? Yes. In Wisconsin, our bill for to be Wisconsin Registered Interior Designers was passed in 1996. However, while it recognized us as being experts in the built environment and the code-regulated building environment, it did not go that one extra step, which is allowing us to sign and seal our own intellectual property, our own documents, which we prepare completely compliant. Even though those documents are completely prepared for submittal, 
they have to go through this extra step of being approved by an architect and stamped so they can actually be submitted. So in Wisconsin, we are looking to modernize that 1996 bill and include the ability to sign and seal our own drawings and the documents we have prepared so they can be submitted under our own name for approval, which would definitely open up opportunities for interior designers in the commercial environment to be able to to do this because virtually every project requires to be submitted for building approval. So right now we are stymied by having to go through another professional to do this. I want to make sure I'm understanding this correctly. From your perspective, there is a good reason to have these standards and requirements for uh, someone in your profession uh, helping to design interior space for commercial properties because there are health reasons um, involved. But it seems like there are multiple bureaucratic layers where you have already in your, you know, from your perspective, you're qualified to be doing this already, but the state is telling you, no, you need this permission slip. Is that the case? That's correct. That we have, we don't have the ability to do that one critical step, which is sign and seal our own drawings for submittal. We have to find an architect, first of all, willing to do that. And it's getting harder and harder to do that. We've been using the same couple architects for a while and, and they are very supportive because they know our expertise, but it's harder to find those architects because uh, architectural firms are getting bigger. They have their own designers. They don't want to sign and seal our drawings. So we kind of are becoming a bit of an island out there. And it makes it very hard for interior designers to own their own business if you can't sign and seal your own drawings because you can design and you can draw. But if you can't find someone to sign and seal them, you really can't do anything with them. So it's a problem for a commercial interior designer. So you're really, you're at the mercy of these architects to really out of the kindness of their hearts say, yeah, okay, we're going to, we're going to approve your designs and put our stamp of approval on them. Well, and they charge us for that too. They charge us separately. So not only can we not do our sign and seal our own drawings, we have to pay another professional to do so. Yeah, yeah. So who has the authority to come in and say, I see that this, you know, requirement is silly and we're going to remove it and allow designers to, uh, you know, formally, if they have the lines, if they have that licensing already to uh, be able to essentially approve their own designs? Well, we ha- we introduced a bill last year to do just that. It really changes the law very little other than to designate that the uh, NCIDQ, which is the National Certification for Interior Designers, which tests the level of expertise based on education, going through the uh, mentorship program, the hours of work. This is the test which qualifies us for this. The law is now saying NCIDQ is what the uh, determiner is. And we have introduced this law to say, if you've passed the NCIDQ, that we should be allowed to sign and seal our drawings. So that's really what we're working on. We need a law. It did go through the Senate in the last session. And it was in the Assembly and time ran out on the session. 
but we feel very positive about our bill and we'll be reintroducing and looking at something new at this next session. So do you have bipartisan support behind this bill? Because uh, this is a, the issue of occupational licensing requirements is specifically harming women for your particular industry, which um, is 80% women. They're also, they also seem to be specifically harming small business owners and contract workers. Is, is that the case? That's exactly the case. Women, as you have mentioned, own predominantly uh, the interior design firms in the country and their small businesses. Most interior design firms are for or under people. So it's got all the, you know, the issues with um, the types of businesses we do want to help. Women, small business. Um, it also gives the, uh, the uh, consumer much more choice. And we do have bipartisan support. I'm glad you mentioned that because our bill was sponsored by both a Republican and a Democrat senator, a man and a woman. So we are we were very happy to have that. Uh, we've had bipartisan support throughout, and we see this as a women's issue, of course, as part of as part of the bill and part of an economic issue for women, definitely. So you're experiencing this in Wisconsin. Are we seeing the similar situation among designers in other states? Do, do we have this similar licensing issue in states across America? We do. It's very much a state issue, and every state handles it differently. There are 23 states that have some type of regulation of interior designers. Some states will allow sign and seal. Other states are in the same situation as we are, where we can prepare all the drawings and we're qualified, but we can't sign and seal. And there are bills in three or four other states right now that would allow uh, the sign and seal of interior designers for the future uh, you know, of our business and of, of women in small business. So if qualified commercial interior designers could work independently of architects, how would that change things not only for the designers, but also for the customers? Oh, my gosh. Well, for the interior designers, it would allow many more to open their own businesses and to have their own businesses. They already have their clientele and they already prepare the drawings. In fact, many interior designers at architectural firms prepare the drawings for submittal for the architects to stamp within their own firms. So for us to have the ability for more interior designers to have the ability to open up their firms, knowing they can actually grow their business, it would be it would be huge. And, and that's really what we're, we're looking for. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Robin, and sharing your perspective on this. I can't help but point out in the middle of this pandemic, it seems more important now than ever before to help small business owners, independent contractors, and female-owned businesses to succeed in the economy. Uh, I, I hope that this is sort of an awakening that, uh, from the federal and, and state levels, we need to cut back the red tape to make it easier for uh, women and, and men like yourself to operate, to make an income, and also, uh, as you importantly pointed out, uh, make things cheaper for customers. Uh, so we will be following this. If you have anything else to add on this issue, feel, please feel free to share it before we let you go. But we really want to thank you for uh, your willingness to break down this sort of complicated, murky topic for us and show us how it is affecting people personally. 
Well, it definitely would provide so much more choice for consumers rather than going to some big firm where the interior designer actually stamps the drawings anyway. There would be many more choices for commercial design independent of those other firms. And and that's really what we're looking for as well. So thank you very much for having me today. It it is a complicated issue. We're trying to make it more simple. um, But thank you for asking me these questions. We really appreciate it, Robin. Yes, thank you, Robin. And I just want to add that Independent Women's Forum is in the process of collecting stories of government regulations like occupational licensing restrictions on independent contract workers, uh, similar to Robin, needlessly preventing or restricting Americans from entering into their desired profession. So if you have a story you want to tell like Robin's, you can head to iwf.org slash chasing dash work. There you'll also find stories of a bunch of nurses who responded to the COVID crisis thanks to the relaxed licensing regulations, along with more stories like Robin's that show how these regulations are impacting a range of different professions and clientele. Thank you. Do you have an interest in public policy? Do you want to hear some of the biggest names in American politics speak? Every day, the Heritage Foundation hosts webinars called Heritage Events Live. Webinar topics range from ethics during the COVID-19 pandemic to the CARES Act and the economy. These webinars are free and open to the public. To find the latest webinar and register, visit heritage.org slash events. All right, welcome back. Now it's my favorite time of the week. Time to crown our problematic woman of the week. And this week, the honor goes to <laughs> White House Press Secretary Kaylee McEnany. You've probably heard a lot about McEnany in the news recently because she's shaking things up a little bit during press briefings, even flipping some norms on their head and asking the press questions instead of the other way around. Last week, she challenged the White House press pool on why they have not been asking questions about the Obama administration's involvement in the launch of the three-year investigation into the Trump campaign and supposed Russia collusion. But not only is McEnany doing a great job as the White House press secretary, she's also killing it as a mom. That's right. McEnany has a beautiful baby girl and is not shy about the fact that she is a full-time mom just as much as she is a full-time working woman. It's really impressive. I I salute her. I don't know how she does it, uh, but it's, it's precious. She's very, very open about the fact uh, that she has this baby daughter that is going to get a lot of her time. Uh, she posts photos on social media with her and her baby and posts a precious, precious photo over the weekend of them taking a nap together. And I, I think it's, again, it's refreshing to see, okay, for some women, that is 100% their call. Um, and that's what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to have that full-time career and be a mom. And to the women who feel empowered and they have enough energy to do that, man, more power to them. I think that's awesome. Yeah, I love that. And she's been getting a lot of flack, I think, on Twitter because she looks so perfect during this pandemic. And everybody's like, where's she getting her hair done? Where's she getting her nails done? Where's she getting her makeup done? But the photo that you posted, she is not wearing makeup. And it's just such a look at her and her daughter's relationship. And for her to share that and and kind of contrast this this powerful working young woman with, you know, being a mom and, and just cuddling with your daughter. It's just, I think it's a really good thing for, for young women to be seeing and, and kind of aspire to. 
It is. And I think it reminds us of what's really important that, you know, at the end of the day, she is this massively impressive lady. But you really get the sense that the thing that she values most is her family. And that's pretty incredible coming from someone that does have uh, the position that she does and is so highly visible. Um, All right. Well, it is that time. It is time for the Twitter question of the week. So we love hearing from you all on Twitter. So please keep tweeting at us. Um, All right. So this week's question is, if you could open any business, what kind of business would you open? And don't forget to tweet using the hashtag problematic woman. Virginia, I always know the answer to this exactly as soon as you ask me. Um, mine is like a hundred and like, no, not even a hundred percent, a million percent. It would be Orange Theory Fitness. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like totally on like reopen watch for the this, this city of DC. And, you know, like I, I really do want to see small business open and, and kind of the economy to come back. But like, I need my gym. I need it so bad. Can you like privately franchise those? Have you looked into it? Yeah, I mean, I just I just want to go and work out. Okay. <laughs> you got to yeah. be able to go and work out anytime oh. you want. Yeah. <laughs> Easiest way to do that is owning one. <laughs> <laughs> but I can't wait to hear what everybody else wants to go. I know. I'm excited. So please tweet at us. Use the hashtag Problematic Women and let us know what small business you would open if you could. All right, that's going to be it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. Conservatives need your support in the podcast world. And we would greatly appreciate a five-star review on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, wherever you do get your podcast. It really does make a difference. Have a great week and we'll see you all next week. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. Special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.